Welcome. Uh, I am happy to be here today, and I am glad that you are joining us as well. Uh, I am thankful that you would take time out of your day to watch, uh, listen to the message that we have prepared for you. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, we believe that God, God of the Bible, uh, is everywhere at once. So that means where you are watching right now, that God is with you. Um, and I would ask that as we go through this message today, that's not something that you would take lightly, uh, that you would be reminded that God is with you where you are as you hear his words today. Um, pray with me and we'll get going. Father God, we, uh, we, are, we are thankful and we praise you for uh, who you are. Uh, we praise you for the fact that you are uh, the living God, that you are with us, uh, but most of all, that you intend to shape us and change us into the image of your son, Jesus. Uh, what a glorious promise that is. So I ask that today, as we hear this message, as we hear your word, that you begin to do that work in us, uh, that you would refine us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are continuing our series, uh, Snapshots of True Faith, uh, in the book of James. And in this series, James gives a very direct call to us, saying that we come from a passive reception of God's grace and embody that in the way we live. So we take the grace that God has given us, the salvation of Jesus Christ, and it is shown in the way that we live day to day. And true faith is a lived out faith. And if we are truly a Christian, one who is born again with new life, then our true faith is seen in our humility and conflict, our speech, our inclusion of those who are different than us, our resisting of temptation, and our perseverance and suffering. How our lives look would be that of Jesus Christ. When people see us and interact with us, they get a glimpse of who Jesus is. That is what truth faith is in action. And that's what James is calling us to. And today we move forward in the book of James where he moves slightly from addressing the group in a relational way to us as individuals. And he addresses us as individuals um, in our way that we have perceived that we have control over our lives, that we have control and declare our own future for ourselves. My goal will be to shed light on the truth that life, all of our lives, are a mist or a vapor. And that urges us to live today because tomorrow is not promised. That every single one of us, we live within the limit of this life. One day we're here and the next day we may not be. And yet we, we live as people on this planet, we live in this, this faithless pretend. Even if we know that there's death and that there's limit to this life, we live in this faithless pretend where we truly believe that we control our tomorrows. And if we're honest with ourselves here, when it comes to planning our tomorrows, we often live as if God does not even exist. And that he, if he does exist, that he just comes right along with our plans because we have declared them. Even as Christians, we express some sort of practical atheism with this in our planning tomorrows. We, we, we want God to succumb to our will versus us succumbing to his. Whom James declares, it is God who actually determines our steps. It is God who directs our days and it is God who completes our lives. 
Now, I, I don't think I have to spend much time trying to, to convince you that, that we don't have control of our futures right now. I think probably for the first time, at least for our own lives, we've realized that our tomorrows are not what we plan them to be. You look at the cancellations of schools, of graduations, of summer trips being postponed or maybe canceled altogether, or maybe even just casual trips into town to do who knows what. Those things that we've considered and assumed that we would have tomorrow has, have been taken away from us, right from our very hands. In fact, those across the globe are experiencing this themselves. Across the globe, we're being awoken and realizing our finitude. We're realizing that we live in perhaps a fantasized, independent control over our lives. And as Christians, we might say, well, yeah, I get that. I've known that for quite some time, that God's in control over my life. And we may even chuckle at the thought that someone would be surprised that they don't have control over our life and that we have a limit to it. But as I've been thinking about this and reading over the passage and reading throughout scripture, I've just been, I've been heartbroken. I've been heartbroken of this reality of like our lives are limited. And that means that limitation includes death. And death is, is evil. Death has always been evil. And we as God's creation, we were never supposed to experience death. But all of us as humankind, we've, we've been exposed to the payment of sin it's the wages of sin that is death. Just like you were to work at, at a job for a week, the, the hours you put in, the effort you put, put in your position, you are given your wages by your work. So it is with us in our work. We have worked and death is the payment from our sin. All of creation, we're under this, this wearying sun. And we find our lives here, they're, they're hurt, they're broken, they're divided. Words are spoken that hurt and, and, and kill. People show partiality and exclusion, excluding others. We see folks that give in to temptation and birth evil into this world. Under the sun, we are oppressed and we're futile. And that's whether we're Christian or not. Churchgoers are not immune to life under the sun. And, and to comprehend this truth of of, of how we were here just as a vapor, that death is real, that does not always offer a comfort. Understanding does not always offer comfort in this. In fact, I would encourage you and, and I, would, I, would, I would lead you in the idea of thinking of death that the right response is actually grief and despair. Those are appropriate responses to this to sober up to the reality that that is actually where we are all going. Death shows no partiality. And it's our denial, it's when we pretend that it's not coming, that we live a life of being deceived. We deny that death is coming and that we're invincible and that we can just do what we want. And when we say we plan it, it's gonna happen because I control my life. It is that, when we live in that way, that we take our eyes off of God and put him right here on earth. And when our eyes are here on earth, there is one person that deserves the attention. We look out for number one often. We put ourselves in the center and we think, I deserve authority. Look at what I can see because we take what we, we see and we believe it and we think that that's it. And we think we deserve, we're entitled to what we want. And that happens within the church. 
and with our own sphere of influence. That's why James is writing this letter. To take a, a more modern example of, of boasting of our tomorrows, thinking we have control, uh, let's consider this quote from uh, IBM's chairman in 1999, where he's minimizing how Amazon might transform the retail and internet sales. This is what he says. He says, Amazon is a very interesting retail concept, but wait till you see what Walmart is gearing up to do. Mr. Gerstner, the chairman, noted that last year, IBM's internet sales were five times greater than Amazon's. Mr. Gerstner boasted that IBM is already generating more revenue and certainly more profit than all of the top internet companies combined. How's that going, IBM? Or this one from Blockbuster CEO in 2008. This is what he says. Neither Redbox nor Netflix are even on the radar screen in terms of competition. How's that going, Blockbuster? And the list could go on of arrogant claims of, of tomorrow for those that have comfort and wealth and power. Or to say it another way, we can get comfortable enough to forget God. Let's see, what, let's see what James says. Let's look at God's word in James chapter four. I'm gonna read verses 13 through 17. You can follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen, it'll show up as well. This is what it says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I, I love the wording that James uses here, how he says, come now. Um, I, I relate to it. You know, it, it's very like he's calling them out, he's calling out his audience, but he's also like doing it in a very relational way. He's like, come on now. You, you people, what do you Come on, I, I just love that. I relate to it. Maybe I talk like that, I don't know. But this is a tone from a pastor where he's calling out his people and he's calling out a particular subset of people within the Christian church. He's, he's actually gonna continue to call these people out in the coming verses and in chapter five. And this subset are those that are wealthy. And at this time in the Christian church, the, the church is, is very poor. The, the Christian movement was very poor moving forward. So this is a small subset of people who are wealthy. And James singles them out. He says, come on now, you people who have the means to get up and travel, to, to go to whatever destination you want for whatever amount of time you want, and that you can do some work there and then make some profit. These are the people he's talking to. And if you think about it, if you're able to make such claims, there's a good chance that you have some kind of financial security, that you can just drop anything you want and go and do what you want. In all honesty, I think this is a lot of us today. If you were to uh, look at people in the US, there's probably a large number of folks that are able to make plans like this and do this. And explain the language a little bit. Like it doesn't quite translate over into English well. Uh, that phrase where he says, we will go to such and such a town, that is actually attached to four verbs within that sentence. So to, to read it more accurately, it would sound something like, we will go to such and such city. We will spend a year there. And we will engage, engage in business. And we will make a profit. It, it sounds a little different. 
with that because that's how it's supposed to be read. It has a tone of, of arrogant boasting where he, he guarantees that he will go there for this time and that he guarantees that he will make a profit. The assumed future of an individual is one that James calls a boasting that is evil. And the assumption of profit is humorous to me. And I need to mention here that, that planning our future and working hard and making money, James is not preaching against that. In fact, the Bible does command that and encourages that, that we would, we would, plan, that we would plan well and work hard. Uh, and, and money is not evil. Um, it's, it's the love of that money. But continue with James' theme of how our actions reveal our faith, we see that even pursuing good things can reveal our faithlessness. How we as a fallen people take the good gifts of God and we somehow we twist them. We take good things and we, we treat them like God things or ultimate things or that we are God over those things. The pastor James, he's continually without cushion confronting and, and turning the lights on in our spiritual houses and revealing what's actually going on there. Where he asks the question, are you truly a Christian, are you really a follower of Christ? Because this is how we know. And a lot of times when it comes to like wealth and comfort, we can live our lives where we can be religious and avoid God altogether. Even in our planning, it reveals our faith. And moving on in verse 14, James gives some reasoning um, that you can when it comes to our planning of why, why we shouldn't be that way. And this is his reasoning. Verse 14, follow along with me. He says, like, come on now, you who say you're gonna do this. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. See, the, the tension here is that death is certain for us all. Like, we know that. Death is coming, but we just don't know when. And so there's a tension there where it's like, hey, I know it's coming, but I have no idea when it's going to happen. And in fact, we are all closer to death uh, since the beginning of this sermon, just as a way of encouragement. He says that we are just a vapor. We're just a mist. And this would be familiar imagery for, for his audience that received this letter because their location, what is now modern-day Syria, is, is, on, is on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And from the coast, there would be this, this huge mist that would come off the coast, and it would be a thick, like, fog and mist. And they would see it, and it would be there, and almost like you couldn't even see through it at some places. And as that mist moved in, it would, it would hit the desert heat and sun, and it would vanish like that. And James says, what is your life? It is like that, here and then gone. No matter how, how real and, and tangible and, and, and actually existent it is, it is just gone. James says, what is your life? You're a mist. This is a huge hit on the self-esteem movement where it's like, I am special. You are special, but you're also a mist. And this, this reality of how we're here for a little and then gone the next, this is true for the righteous and the wicked. This is for good people and bad people. This is for the nice and the nasty, the believer and the unbeliever, the, the honest truth teller and the lying deceiver all go into the ground in, in the end. 
and to connect with us, connect this with some of the previous issues that James addresses, this means, and this is, this is huge for right now. This is hugely practical. This is what James is saying. He's saying the time is coming when all the things we think are most important in this world, all of our strongest emotions, your love, your hate, your jealousy, the time is coming when they will all go cold and vanish and be forgotten. It's heartbreaking in some ways. In the end, death truly makes no sense to us. And and death leaves us frustrated. It it leaves our faces tear-stained with with perplexity and, and confusion. And because death is like that, life works like this. God comes to us in Jesus and he says, trust me, walk with me, love me. Put your hand in my hand. Believe my word, for I have known your death personally, and I have defeated it with my power. I live, and true faith in me brings life for you today. For I am your hope in this life and the next. So now, dear follower, you may die well. James is pointing us to die well, and to die well means to live well. To die well means that we realize that death is the limit that God has placed on those who aspire to be gods. The book of James is just that. It's a rebuke, it's an exhortation to those who aspire to get the glory and the entitled status that only God deserves to arrogantly and outwardly demand that our own good laws would be followed by those around us. And if they don't, then they should be judged and cursed. It's no wonder that James hits so hard. You see what is on the line here. God says, I will give my glory to no other. And James says, and I will make sure of that. To die well means to realize that I am not owed tomorrow by God. And it's only because of his mercy that I am not consumed today. And, and hear me when I, when I say preparing to die well. It, it's not, it doesn't mean drawing the curtain and, and dressing in black and thinking morbid thoughts. It's not what that means. Preparing to die well means thinking about how to live well today. It means that I have been laying up treasures in heaven that I have been putting my heart there, that I know that my days are short, so every moment I have is for God and for his kingdom and for his glory. My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. And it's for Christ who I live. Because God, he is one who is completely outside of time. That means he is outside of time and he is one that holds our today and our tomorrow. God right now sees this moment and he also sees when Peter denies Jesus. God sees this moment and he sees George Washington crossing the Delaware. This is who God is. He sees it all at one time. He is, he is huge and majestic. This is the one that holds your tomorrow and today in his hands. And, and, and it's those truths that, that cause me to to love God more. He gains my affections with that. He, he gains my reverence with that. He gains my humility with that type of truth. He proves that he is generous and that he is merciful to give me another day. And in verse 15, 
James says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, it changes. It went from we will do this to if God wills. It, it de- true faith decentralizes us and, and it puts our minds into what's actually going on. We recognize that we were never actually in control of this ship at all. This is God and his hand controlling my life. And if the Lord wills your tomorrow, let's live in it. For yes, we will return to dust from which we came. But the one that formed us out of the dust also breathes life and purpose into that dust. His very own breath is in us. His very own image is on us. And his very divine purpose is through us. So if you have today, live in it as God has demonstrated in Christ. If you have today, cherish that moment, knowing that your true faith can be seen by others and influence those around you. Don't don't settle for this idea that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Rather, apprentice under James, learn under the word of God. Be apprenticed by Jesus himself where we learn humility, where we learn maturity, where we learn suffering, where we learn love, where we learn speech, where we learn true faith that actually leads to life and life everlasting. You see, to live well and to die well have the exact same lifestyle is one that is found in submission to God and his word. And and if that sounds disappointing to you, then I, I would venture to say you don't know God very well. For submission and following after after God, this is where you find joy. This is where you find peace. This is where you find contentment. This is where you find steadfastness to make it through your suffering. And this joy that you have is so infectious that those around you may just catch it. James states in verse 17, to take what you know about life and death and show it in your everyday life. Take what you know about God. Take what you know to be true. Take what you know from your conscience that's pointing you in this direction. Take that and show it in your today. Otherwise, it's living in sin. It's, it's sin of omission. It's choosing to not do the right thing. It's choosing to be ignorant. It's, it's willful ignorance, and ignorance is not bliss. It's just ignorance. And to truly live, to submit to God and to follow after him, we're not gonna find some, some man in the sky with a beard on a throne waiting to zap us when we mess up. No. What we discover is the father of lights who is like the host who welcomes us into his kingdom and brings us into the most lavish banquet for us to enjoy together. So I ask, are you living today like you're a vapor? Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for living in pretend. Forgive us for living in arrogance, thinking that our tomorrow is within our control. And Father God, we praise you and thank you that you are actually the one to control these because you are so good and generous 
May we trust our days to you. And if you will, that we would gather again. May we have such praises to sing of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.